0: Vette Brown from Awkwardness and Grace. I'm a white mom raising two black boys and if you feel squeamish talking about race you're not alone. Join me, parents, and professionals as we have conversations about race and the awkwardness and grace of it all. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Awkwardness and Grace. When I was thinking about this podcast episode, I wasn't exactly thrilled about talking about Martin Luther King Jr. I felt a bit obligated because this month we honor his birthday. Yes, he is a national hero and an amazing historical African-American figure. But like most white folks, I learned of Martin Luther King through news or school. Personally, and regretfully, I feel he has been whitewashed down into a symbol of peaceful protest for the comfort of whites. What you may not know is that millions of white Americans hated Dr. King. He disrupted the status quo, especially after World War II. White Americans came back from fighting and reaped the rewards of the G.I. Bill, while black servicemen were sidelined and prevented access to those benefits. By the 1950s, black Americans were again being shut out of the American dream and the wealth that came from it. I Didn't know of the disdain toward Martin Luther King. I knew he was murdered, but it never really sunk in that people hated him. Again, my white privilege gets me off the hook to not think deeply of racial justice because it doesn't directly impact me. So I decided to push myself into exploring what made this man. Why is he so important? And how can we relate what he has laid as groundwork for society and use it going forward? He was an exceptional man. As a person that wants to do anti-racism work, it can be intimidating. I found myself having to break down his racial justice mission into bite-sized chunks. So I can find a way to go forward without organizing a million woman or man march. Or just giving up. Even breaking down his life is like a history class within itself. So I will offer a synopsis barely touching his life's work. There are vast amount of materials on him and I encourage you to explore. Martin Luther King Jr. played many roles. If you distilled it down, he was essentially a humanitarian. What exactly is a humanitarian? Well, if you go to the United Nations website, you can read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. In Article Number 1, it says all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience, and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. Pretty easy to comprehend. Scrolling down further, additional articles cover rights without distinction or discrimination, the right of life, liberty, and security of person no one shall be subjected to torture or to cruel, inhumane, or degrading treatment or punishment. These are just a few articles within the Declaration. It is really worth going onto the web and reading. There are limitless numbers of humanitarian crises in countries throughout the world. There are famines, natural disasters, or people being executed or tortured for political, religious, gender, or racial differences. Being a white American, I grew up with the idea that America is a humane country, and because these crises are not on my turf, I have the luxury to examine these atrocities as happening to other places and not on my homeland. I can buy an animal for a villager in Africa, or donate money to a remote poverty stricken village. But I am pretty removed from poverty and strife. Uh, okay, did I really say that? Yes, I did. And I used to think this way. It wasn't happening in my immediate world, so it didn't affect me. As for Dr. King, he was fighting these human rights in his own country. In my country, he fought for human rights of oppressed people that were being tortured, subjected to degrading treatment, arbitrary arrest, deprived of property, denied equal pay for equal work. His drive for the greater good of humanity was bigger than him, so he could not turn his back on trying to right the wrongs of human oppression he took a step and had faith that the next person and the next and the next would have faith in him and follow. How did he become the leader he was? The making of Martin Luther King Jr. is grounded in strong Christian Baptist values forged by his family, specifically his father and grandfather, who were both preachers. Dr. King grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, in a middle-class neighborhood that was bustling with prosperous businesses and churches. Both of his parents were college-educated. Even though he had a very stable upbringing, he was not immune to racism and degrading Jim Crow laws. Like the majority of black families I have talked with, he experienced racism early on when a white playmate told Martin Luther King that he couldn't play with him because he was black. This was just the beginning of a lifetime of racism. At 15 years old, he attended Morehouse College in Atlanta. But the summer before college, he went to Connecticut to work on a tobacco farm. In a letter to his parents, he wrote, Negroes and whites go to the same church. I never thought that a person of my race could eat anywhere. It was a real eye-opener how peacefully the races mixed in the North. This Northern experience only reinforced King's growing hatred of racial segregation. It affected him personally and millions like him. In college, he became acquainted with the philosophy of nonviolence. He studied grades such as Henri Thoreau, Mahatma Gandhi, Abraham Lincoln, along with many more. King included Mahatma Gandhi among individuals who greatly revealed the workings of the Spirit of God. And he embraced the idea, in Gandhi's words, Nonviolence is the first article of my faith. It is also the last article of my creed. Using the tools of nonviolence, his Christian conviction, love as a means to conquer hate, and his passion for racial justice, culminated into a deep sense of hope for ending racism in America. Like Ida B. Wells and W.E.B. Du Bois, to name a few, blazed a trail making it easier for Dr. King to follow. Martin's first nonviolent protest was a year long boycott of the Montgomery bus system. Talk about patience and persistence. The boycott succeeded in the landmark decision confirming segregation was unconstitutional. This was the first crack that fractured the Jim Crow laws. This also stoked the fires to keep fighting. King's home was bombed anonymous phone callers made threats. King, former Senator John Lewis, and others were beaten and jailed in mass arrests. But King steadfastly preached tolerance. We must use the weapon of love, he told the New York Times. We must have compassion and understanding for those who hate us, he would explain. This approach certainly doesn't make the white man feel comfortable, it disturbs his conscience. Dr. King thought nonviolence instilled a sense of shame in whites, not comfort or the idea that blacks were meek or supine. He felt that if you are to fight with nonviolence, then you have to accept being the recipient of violence, with the intent of not reciprocating with violence. He believed so strongly in nonviolence that he had the communities he worked with take courses in nonviolence. His students would be put in a mock violent situation. Then he taught them strategies on how to react to prepare them. Children as young as seven years old were trained and not allowed to march until they went through these courses. In the communities he entered... He had the support of prominent local organizations. They would all strategize together because the locals would know the workings of the community. As impactful as he was, his nonviolent path to racial equality was being challenged by other black scholars. Dr. King wanted to continue loving the oppressor no matter what because he thought it would wear them down. But the oppressor just played Dr. King. The black community was tired of waiting to be treated with basic civil rights. In a PBS interview in the early 1960s, other prominent leaders questioned Dr. King's philosophy of nonviolence. Malcolm X thought he was playing into the hands of whites. James Baldwin agreed with nonviolence, but thought at a certain point blacks would start protecting themselves and seek revenge. In 1963, Malcolm X told interviewers, the goal of Dr. Martin Luther King is to get Negroes to forgive the people who have brutalized them for 400 years. But the masses of black people in America today don't go for what Martin Luther King is putting down. Malcolm X had many supporters and fought hard for black communities to have their basic needs met, organized with a zeal that was intimidating to the white community, and the price he paid was, with his life, ending far too short. Martin Luther King worked tirelessly to bring awareness to America. Yet in 1963, 100 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, there were still no civil rights for all people in the United States. In 1963, A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin planned a march on Washington that would call for the fair treatment and equal opportunity for black Americans. Meanwhile, Dr. King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. We're planning a march for freedom. The two powerhouses combined led the march on Washington for jobs and freedom. This is where Dr. King gave the famous "We have a Dream" speech. The dream he was speaking of was the American dream that was available for white Americans, not black In the afterglow of the march on Washington, Dr. King wrote a book called Why We Can't Wait. He emphasized the need to confront structural racism and inequality, leaning on nonviolent resistance. He prodded his readers to ground their political attitudes and actions in ethics, morals, and intellectual consistency. The nonviolent protests brought attention to the strife of racial inequality, yet the lack of progress, complicity, and the endless resistance to change forced Dr. King to redirect his attention. He decided to turn his energy towards working with President Robert F. Kennedy and the government to address institutional racism directly through politics, policy, funding, laws, and enforcement of those anti-racism laws by the government. He had very concrete ideas of how the racist institutional system could be changed from the top down. He envisioned overseeing the government process, possibly even as a secretary of integration. Not only did he have a dream, he clearly knew how to implement it. He used every internal resource, especially his strong conviction for nonviolence and external resources such as fellow civil rights leaders, the media, and politicians to build a coalition of millions. He pushed for the Civil Rights Act and he, along with John Lewis, fought for the Voting Rights Act. By the 1960s, the black population started to reap the rewards of the seeds that were sown. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which Senator John Lewis was heavily involved in, passed. The intrigue of how these acts came about is fascinating. People giving their blood, bodies, life to fight for these human rights. The resources concerning his accomplishments are boundless on the Internet. I encourage you to pursue it. So how can a small person like me do anything to make a difference in a quagmire of racism in America? Let's start with hope. I do have hope that we can find a way through our racially infused mindsets and differences to accept each other and treat each other humanely. It is obviously not an easy task, but it is possible Individually, we can start with what we know about ourselves. Ask yourself, why are you interested in ending racism? How does racism affect you? What aspect of racial injustices really irks you? For some, it is police brutality. For others, it is having schools incorporate books with kids of color in the curriculum. If you want to see racial justice in this country and feel overwhelmed or hopeless, there are so many bite-sized steps you can take to support others that are doing amazing work. Here are a list of questions that may spark you into feeling like you can do great and bite-sized work. What are your skills? Can you volunteer? Can you write, read, and filter emails? do graphic design or web design, make some calls, take online classes to learn about talking with your kids about race, make posters for a rally, call local politicians, call state legislators, talk to your local police department, talk to your church. Can you donate money? For every single leader, there are multitudes following. These multitudes are the foundational support system of any leader. You know how it is. You are wanting to change something at your kid's school, but you are exhausted and don't have the bandwidth to do it alone. So you take what little energy you have to rally four more people, and now you're doing one-fifth of the work. Look at what is happening at the Capitol. There was recently an insurrection. Whether it was intended to be a nonviolent political protest or not, it took hundreds playing different roles to make it happen. Recently, I read there are major corporations withdrawing funding to any organization that participated in the insurrection. I, along with many, signed online petitions to pressure some of these corporations for me, it was a quick pop. The point of this is that if I wrote a letter to a major corporation, it would eventually get read or probably be lost in the mix. But with thousands of emails from the majority of their customer base, this can destabilize the company and they can go out of business. So as an individual, I may not directly have power to influence these corporations but I am one tiny part that can be the tipping point for action. You may not be able to lead multitudes, but you can lead yourself. On a more macro level, the corporate donors, to politicians that opposed the electoral votes or who supported or participated in the insurrection at the Capitol, felt the pressure from their customer base. One major corporation withdrew donations. This was followed by another, and then another. Soon, it became a ball of solidarity. The momentum attracted mutual values and gave each corporation courage to join the bandwagon. This is an example of institutional power by withdrawing funding to the recipients of their donations. These corporations are sending a message that democratic dissidence is not acceptable. Can you imagine if they took their institutional power and chose to take a stance towards anti-racism? They do have the power to change and implement anti-racist institutional policy. What would our country look like if the corporate world embraced anti-racism as their corporate policy? One of my favorite companies, Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream, has done just that. You can go to their website to see their corporate mission statement as an example. King's optimism about political institutions declined over time. As he witnessed the increasingly violent opposition to racial justice, What is worth acknowledging is his unyielding belief in nonviolence, his persistence, resilience, and pulling from his internal and external resources to help millions and to create deep social change. As a parent, I look at Dr. King as a great example of how to move forward working off key values he embodied. For younger children, fairness is always a concept they feel strongly about. Talk about fairness and how they feel when they are not treated fairly. Have your child tap into the awful feeling of being treated unfairly. Relate this unfairness to the unfairness of what Black people and non-Black people of color experience every day. Ask your child. How would they feel if they couldn't go to the same playground, school, or library because they are different from others? Another idea is being mad but not mean. I have to shout out to my kid's school counselor, Miss Keene, for teaching us this. Your child can get mad like all of us can. It is what we do with this big, giant emotion that makes a difference. When your child gets mad, acknowledge it and help her release that emotion in a non-violent way. This work should be done before the child gets mad so you have a strategy. Refer back to Dr. King. He was mad about injustices, but he knew he needed to not lash out and hurt others, even if he felt hurt. Resilience, similar to grit. Let's say your child is frustrated with their homework or the puzzle they are working on. They get mad and decided to give up. Unfortunately, giving up denies them the opportunity to accomplish something that challenged them. When people are challenged, even in adverse situations, their brains fire and light up to overcome the challenge. It is really healthy, and even if they fail, their brains still are stimulated due to the challenge depending on the age of the child, push them to keep going. If they did make a mistake, ask them, what was the mistake? What can they do differently? What did they learn from their mistake? Martin Luther King Jr. made many mistakes. Can you imagine if he gave up at the first protest? Where would our friends of color be now? Dr. King was resilient in the face of adversity. Dr. King couldn't have done it alone. He had family, friends, and community. He knew in order for this societal problem to be solved, he needed a team. Encourage your child to work with fellow students. Emphasize group projects. They will learn skills like shared experiences, how to delegate, and how to allow others to have a voice in the process. They can learn the magic of diverse ideas and reach beyond their own. They can see the possibilities in teamwork. This can start in the home. Find small projects that your whole family can work on and clearly state how it couldn't have been possible without everyone's help. For little kids, going to the playground to build a sandcastle with a group of kids, even if they don't know the other kids personally. For older kids, they can create projects with their friends that have more purpose. They can work together to clean up a beach or a park. My eight-year-old son and a bunch of his schoolmates made posters to boycott McDonald's because he and his friends thought the food was unhealthy. This is a bit of a tangent, but in our household, this led to a discussion relating to poverty. I personally don't eat McDonald's, but there are millions of people that do. And one of those reasons is because our society puts a premium price on healthy food. McDonald's provides a warm, tasty, affordable meal. This did shine a new light on his protest. Now, what about persistence? Your child is frustrated because she or he is not getting the results they want. The project they are working on is not drawing interest from their friends. Yes, they can give up, or they can strategize new ways to get friends motivated. What an incredible skill. Figuring out how to communicate or motivate others to help with a project. My 14-year-old faced this obstacle in class recently. As an 8th grader, he had to motivate his team of 6th and 7th graders to write and produce a play. He was constantly frustrated. He complained a lot. He ended up doing more work than he should have. But he also had to learn how to think outside of his box to get others motivated. Persistence is also a personal skill that teaches patience and flexibility. It allows for mistakes and making fine adjustments to get something right. Dr. King persisted and was constantly agile and open to finding a solution to his problem. And I cannot conclude without talking about love, faith, hope, and belief. As a human being, we are more than the sum of our skills. We are connected by love, which is powerful and at the same time fragile Love of self allows us to propel forward as our authentic self. Love for others moves us to work for humanity and common good. Faith is the conjoined twin of hope. Hope is our deep desire for something we believe in to manifest. Faith is the inner confidence to keep us moving in the direction of hope and deep desire belief is something we personally hold as true. Dr. King held love as a powerful force that can conquer hate. His faith in nonviolence propelled him forward to continue his deep belief in love and racial justice. His hope was the fire that fed his faith. He held these beliefs as true. So true that he was willing to be harmed or even give his life for the greater good. I hope you enjoyed listening and have a few tools to talk to your kids and friends about being anti-racist. Peace and blessings until the next show.